This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to the summer season of Best of the Festivals. I'm Cassie McCullough and over the next two weeks I'll be bringing you talks and discussions from events around Australia. And today we begin with a remarkable conversation from this year's Queenscliff Literary Festival. The internet and the pandemic have turbocharged the dissemination of misinformation and disinformation and a disturbing number of people are continuing to get drawn into online conspiracy cults with terrible consequences for families and communities. And one of the most influential and renowned conspiracies is QAnon. Coming up, journalist and author Van Badham speaks with RN's Paul Barclay about her book QAnon and On which she spent a year researching, going deep undercover in online conspiracy communities. Were you surprised when you went undercover into this world just how deep and wide and disseminated this group had become? Well, the really sad thing is that was that I had experienced this group on the internet long before I wrote the book. So I write for Guardian Australia. I'm very involved in the internet. I run a podcast and the internet is my medium. And of course, being a woman and a feminist and political and progressive, you can imagine the past 10 years of my life have been like a constant procession of death threats and rape threats and attacks on the way I look and my name being used in various, you know, conspiracy contexts. And it has been quite challenging for me and for my family and my partner to really negotiate how my position as a media person is dissected on the internet and on a day-to-day basis, like not a day goes past where I don't get some crazy threat or find myself recruited as an internet folk villain in some fanciful story. And in 2017, I started getting a different, a sort of different flavour of hate because whenever I get these sort of weird comments, I, I have a whole process I have to go through where I have to screen cap them and file them and put them in an archive just in case somebody threatens my life or tries to kill me, which has unfortunately happened in various contexts. I am still here, which is very exciting, and uh, yet to go to hospital. So that's also good. Uh, have been to court numerous times, though, to get intervention orders. But I started seeing this this flavour of hate that was using really sort of apocalyptic, quasi-religious language. And it didn't happen just once. It happened over and over again. And I was like, what is this? Mm. Like, what is this particular movement? And I started doing what I do, which is to go back to the sources and follow these accounts and saw that they had this sort of weird pseudo-evangelical cult-like quality to their sort of concerns. And of course, there was this conspiracy theory about Hillary Clinton draining blood from babies and drinking it to keep herself youthful. And and I was fascinated by this. And I sort of kept tabs on it because it was happening again and again. And then I noticed that American journalism had picked up on what was going on and that this was the QAnon cult and it had come out of 4chan, which unfortunately was an internet website I knew all too well because I had been attacked by people who'd been mobilised on 4chan before. And I followed the story. The reason I wrote the book was because I was sort of slightly ahead of, I think, 
non-internet media and sort of being on to these people and became part of an international conversation because feminists are usually the canary in the coal mine when it comes to different kinds of internet abuse, as you can imagine. Mm. And we were all sort of talking about it. And I had written an article for The Guardian about what to do if you know somebody who's gone down a rabbit hole based on the conversations that I was sort of having at the time. And I was contacted by... 600 people in a couple of days telling me about their brother or their cousin or their aunt or their mother or or a close friend who suddenly was dealing with someone they loved and care about spouting these kind of crazy theories. And I got a phone call from a really old friend who was a cult survivor from another context who was now in contact with these QAnon people. And it was one of the most just chilling conversations I'd ever had. Like this friend of mine was genuinely traumatised by what had happened to her. And I was like, this is the story. Like, this is affecting a lot of people. Yeah, this is Michelle. This is Michelle. Uh, Perhaps we'll talk about Michelle a little later when when we hear about some personal stories. Uh, I mean, I think some in the audience will know a little bit about QAnon. It's far-right political tendencies. Maybe it's relationship with Pizzagate and Gamergate. But perhaps if you can just explain QAnon, where it came from and how it morphed into what it is today. So there's a website called 4chan and 4chan is the wild west of the internet. When you post on 4chan, your posts are anonymous, so you can say whatever you like, and people do. And this website has been going for a a long time. It started in the early 2000s. And it was started by a guy who no one knew this at the time, was a 15-year-old boy. And he, this guy called Christopher Mootpool. And on 4chan, anything goes. You know, they post photos of their bowel movements. They have competitions amongst one another to prank other people. If you're on the internet at all, things like rickrolling or lolcats, words that make no sense to people who aren't on the internet, they're all sort of 4chan memes and and in-jokes. And what happens in, in 2017, Trump's been in power for a year and it's not going so well. You know, this great, glorious, make America great again fantasy is not turning out. And various communities on 4chan who are deeply invested Donald Trump supporters are playing sort of internet games, you know, and claiming that uh, Trump is a god emperor and he's going to lead the people to revolution and these temporary troubles are all going to go away. And it's the kind of garbage nonsense you'd associate with extremely drunk undergraduates at the pub, you know, making up fanciful claims and everybody's sort of chipping in. And on 4chan, there's a tradition of what they call LARPing, which is, stands for live action role playing. And it's a game mm. where you pretend to be someone else. And this has been going on since the beginning of 4chan. People pretend to be spies or double agents or high-level insiders. Or, and it's all fantasy and everybody on 4chan knows that it's a fantasy. In October 2017, someone turns up on 4chan claiming that they are a deep cover secret service person and that they have knowledge that evil Hillary Clinton is going to be arrested any minute now by Trump's administration and taken to Guantanamo and all these other various political opponents of Trump are going to be seized off the street. And other people start participating in this game. Yes, yes, this is definitely going to happen. You know, the arrests are coming. It's going to happen at this time and on this date. So this is, a, this is a, an ironic use of conspiracy memes by these people online. They're not 
saying that this is true, they're having fun. They're having fun. It's a game. It's an absolute game. The kind of guys who hang out on 4chan, and overwhelmingly they're guys, uh, guys with desk jobs who are bored, who like anime and porn and being disgusting to one another. And of course, what's happened on 4chan is if you have, and I go into a lot of detail about this in the book, if you have a free speech wonderland where nobody is going to stop you from saying things that are ironically racist or ironically sexist or ironically extremely anti-Semitic, well, eventually the irony falls away and people who legitimately hold those views start turning up. Like a safe place for people to engage in white supremacy, if it's ironic or not, is going to attract white supremacists. So what happens is these mythologies about Hillary Clinton appear in this, you know, ironic game-playing, on this ironic game-playing website, and they travel beyond 4chan. They travel beyond the game because a group of people go, hang on, this could be serious. And they take the story to Reddit, which is a different kind of internet community, Mm. and they start making YouTube videos to another different kind of community where people who are like conspiracy celebrities start talking about these posts as if they are completely legitimate, Mm. as if these are statements of a deep cover spy. And very quickly, like over a matter of weeks, these communities are sharing these anonymous posts as if they are these, you know, essentially high-level leaks and building communities beyond that. And more and more posts start to appear and the posts contain this sort of coded language and the rest of it. And all of a sudden you have otherwise normal people who are sort of on the fringes of the conspiracy movement who might be sort of Hillary Clinton drinks blood curious. Um, (laughs) having these conversations amongst one another and perpetuating this mythos which grows bigger and bigger. And that is the basis of the QAnon cult. But things get serious with Pizzagate and with a guy called Edgar Madison Welsh, who really does believe some of the stuff that you just said and decides that he needs to take action. So he finds a pizza restaurant and in 2016, believes that Hillary Clinton has kidnapped children who are in the basement of this pizza restaurant. Let's set aside for a second that there is no basement in the pizza restaurant, Mm. doesn't exist, and starts shooting at the pizza restaurant, Pizzagate. So that happened, so Pizzagate was like the forerunner. So Pizzagate happened in 2016. Okay. And the, the conspiracy theory at the heart of Pizzagate was that Hillary Clinton, I mean, she's very popular in these circles, that Hillary Clinton, wait for it, is secretly both a witch and a lizard, and that the witch lizard Hillary Clinton was part of a secret pedophile cabal where they were abducting 800,000 children off American streets in a year and kidnapping them to participate in satanic rituals where they drank their blood under the streets. And, yeah, I mean, it is complete. This is not a thing. Like, 800,000 children do not go missing in the United States every year. The number of children who are unaccounted for in a year in the United States is about 137. Usually when children go missing, parents are involved. Like, there are lots of very easy-to-find facts that destroy these mythologies. And she's not a lizard. And she's not a lizard. Like, Hillary Clinton, love her or hate her, fundamentally is not a lizard. And nor, nor a witch... 
But in 2016, part of the disinformation campaigning going around with the Trump campaign, as you can imagine, is sharing these conspiracy theories. And this guy called Edgar Madison Welch, who works in it, who's, you know, from a middle-class family, but whose life hasn't gone in really great directions. He's a bit traumatised. He's been involved in an accident that's put a kid in hospital. And he starts absorbing these conspiracy myths from the internet and becomes convinced that Hillary Clinton is literally draining the blood of babies. I can't say this enough because like, I spent a year with these people just going, mm. trying to understand why you would seize on this and that it's happening specifically in this Washington restaurant called Comet Ping Pong, which is, you know, an arty restaurant where there are ping pong tables and, you know, really good pizzas apparently does great cocktails. And I know this because one of my friends in one of those, you know, the world is very small coincidences, was there on the day, had literally just left the restaurant and gone to the bookstore next door when Edgar Madison Welch turned up with an assault rifle and walked through the door looking for the basement that Hillary Clinton was eating babies in, and there was no basement. Shot up the restaurant, was arrested, did four years in prison. And my friend came out of the bookstore and saw all the cops everywhere and the guy with his hands on his head and was like what has happened. Mm. And I, I mean, I talk about this in the book, but this was the kind of stuff that was seeded. Yep. So that community of people who'd heard this Pizzagate myth were the audience for when a year later, 4chan started talking about QAnon. Mm. And so there's been a bit of laughing through all of this from the audience, understandably, about the reptile humanoids that are apparently Reptoids, uh, that's the lingo. If you wanna, if you wanna be in with the okay. conspiracy community, yeah. Uh, reptoids. Reptoids. But the point at which it stops becoming really funny, well, there's many points at which it stops becoming really funny, but the fact that QAnon has infiltrated the US Republican Party and its leadership is one point in which this stops to become funny. Tell us to what extent the Republican Party are maybe manipulating and weaponizing this disinformation that's coming out of QAnon for their own benefit. Well, this is the most terrifying thing. So when I started writing the book, my interest was in the, the limits of belief. Like, why, why do people believe these things? Yep. So I went undercover in the community and I befriended people who had these beliefs, created a bunch of false personas until I found ones that sort of stuck. And I had conversations with people mm. about where their beliefs had come from and how they had influenced their decision-making. And I spoke to psychologists, I interviewed psychologists in the book to try and understand what could make someone part company with facts and reality to that extent. And for me, quite honestly, it was sort of, it was a bit of a zoo safari. It was like, there's something clearly wackadoo going on and this could be quite a funny John Ronson style yep. book, you know, that where I'm meeting these people who hold these strange ideas. But the deeper I got into the research, the more chilling the experience got because I was aware of the fact that I was actually investigating a disinformation community and disinformation pipelines that had been encouraged and facilitated by bad faith political actors. So, for example, I talked about how the QAnon myth begins on 4chan where it's all ironic and it goes to Reddit within a matter of days and then it's on YouTube and then there are all of these other groups. Well, there were 4,000 Russian government-backed accounts that were promoting the QAnon mythos on Twitter and building up a sort of social media heft around the ideas to scoop up people and channel them into these kind of communities. 
And it's not only that there's been enormous amounts of Russian state uh, interference and channeling and manipulation and moulding of these groups. There's also been the involvement of the Iranian government and the Chinese government and the Republican Party in the United States. Because the fundamental political realisation you meet is that somebody who is willing to believe that the Democratic candidate for President of the United States in 2016 is secretly a 10-foot lizard person in a skin suit, if you can convince somebody to believe that, you can convince them to believe anything. And politically, that's a very powerful weapon. So what's happened in the United States is that you had extremely bad faith political actors, and I will name one, his name is Steve Bannon, who saw what was going on on 4chan, and Steve Bannon is a long-time user of 4chan as well, um, and he had stoked things that had gone on on 4chan behind his internet publication Breitbart. He's a very sophisticated user of internet campaigns as a medium. People like Steve Bannon saw the potential. that He actually called it the monster power of the internet in being able to promote propaganda narratives and get certain people on, on certain messages and deploy communities of people. Anybody who has the time to sit on the internet all day decoding secret messages about Hillary Clinton, the lizard person, is somebody with the kind of time to participate in campaigning for Republican primary, to participate, like, handing out or going to AstroTurf, which is fake grassroots demonstrations. Like, you can mobilise those people. And this is what's happened in the United States, is that people like Steve Bannon, who are, like, the extreme right, of the Republican movement. His, his role and the role of those kind of actors has been channeling these people behind various mobilisations of that extreme right in the Republican Party, mm. and it has taken over the Republican Party. And I mentioned this in the context today. Elise Stefanik is the third most important Republican in the Congress. She's got the third highest position of seniority. She's a congressional representative from the state of New York pretty switched on progressive place, usually. And, and Republicans from the state of New York are usually much more progressive than, say, Republicans in Utah or Wyoming. She was tweeting this morning, I just happened to see the tweet, where she referred to the Democrats. She used the term, like, pedo-groomers. And they're using this language like powerful people in influential positions in the Republican Party are using this complete dehumanisation and demonisation of their political opponents using this QAnon language, making these sort of not-so-silent dog whistles. I think we're beyond the dog. We're just into the whistle phase <laughs> of this because that's who the base of the Republican Party is. Elise Stefanik needs QAnon believers to stay pre-selected in the primary process mm. in her own seat. Mm. So they are all paying lip service to this conspiracy that all Democrats are pedophiles and Satanists and the rest of it. And that is unbelievably dangerous for democracy, as yeah. you can imagine. On Radio National Summer, this is Best of the Festivals. We're listening to Paul Barclay speaking with Van Badham about her book QAnon and On, which examines how extreme conspiracy theories are undermining politics around the world. Next up, we'll hear about their impact in Australia. And just a reminder, this conversation was recorded this year before the change of government at the federal election. 
What about in Australia? To what extent has QAnon attracted Australian believers? Well, I think it's pretty disturbing, which is why I devote the first chapter of the book to it, yep. that Scott Morrison had a QAnon believer staying in Kirribilli House. I think, I think that's a problem. Uh, Four Corners, of course, did the expose and there was amazing reporting in Crikey and the story was broken by my colleagues at The Guardian that discovered Scott Morrison has a friend called Tim Stewart who was at his wedding. He was at Tim Stewart's wedding. Tim Stewart's wife is best friends with Jenny Morrison and Scott Morrison had <laughs> given Tim Stewart's wife a job at Kirribilli House with a security clearance at the same time her husband, Tim, was online with a Twitter following of 20,000 people, pushing out mythologies that, what a coincidence, Alexander Downer and Julie Bishop, two of Scott Morrison's internal factional rivals, were, would you believe it, part of the pedophile cabal. And this extraordinary coincidence, I think, bears some greater investigation. Um, Four Corners did, Louise Milligan did a fantastic job, David Hardacre at Crikey and, and the boys at The Guardian really went into that, going how on earth this is, QAnon is a movement that has been identified by the FBI in America as a domestic terror threat. The belief system has been associated with acts of random stochastic terror, lone wolf attacks in the United States. People have died, they were at January 6th. And you have a person in Australia who is highly enfranchised within that network, who had imported QAnon identities from the United States to Australia and hung out with them and promoted their beliefs and had used his social media accounts to attack various people at Kirribilli House. I should say that the Prime Minister has categorically denied any influence or association. The Prime to Minister QAnon. has categorically denied any influence of QAnon, but the Prime Minister is also on record during the apology. When the apology was made in the Parliament House to the survivors of institutional sexual abuse, Scott Morrison was the Prime Minister and gave a, an apology. And people like myself who watch sort of extremist, this kind of extremist cult activity all over the world, and there's quite a family of us. Um, obviously, because you can't, you can't watch it continually. You sort of need to tag friends in and out. Otherwise, you will also start believing in losing people. A extremism watcher from the UK picked up something that Scott Morrison said in his apology speech where he talked about the survivors of ritual abuse. Now, ritual abuse is a statement of faith in the conspiracy movement because it's about the Satan worshipping pedophiles who eat babies under pizza restaurants. Like, it's a, it's a dog whistle. It's a code word for that particular community. And it was not in the draft of the speech that had been approved. Obviously, in the advisory groups that had gone on around this extremely sensitive apology to, let us just remember, survivors of actual institutional sexual abuse, they had been quite forthright in disavowing that kind of language because it was associated with conspiracy mongering. And it did appear in Scott Morrison's speech. I what, think once, is that right? Once, but it was the Prime Minister giving a formal apology. And the QAnon people were celebrating online and there's a series of text messages from Tim Stewart to one of his friends in the, in the conspiracy movement bragging about his influence over the Prime Minister in getting that language included. Now, that may not have happened. We, the Prime Minister has disavowed any kind of connection to that. But that is 
unbelievably bad. And the fact that people from the advisory groups had said quite explicitly that language was inappropriate, that it delegitimised the kind of apology because it spoke to these sort of fanciful online communities was really disturbing. And this is the problem, is that you have politicians who are not believers in lizard people, but who see the potential of those kind of disinformation communities as shock troops. In, mm. in the book, I talk about what Bannon has been able to do with those communities in America is genuinely terrifying. Like, their grip on the Republican Party means that Liz Cheney, literally, she's a Cheney, she's one of the most right-wing people in the West, is now essentially ideologically positioned as some kind of communist because she refuses to believe in lizard people. Mm. And this is, this is really disturbing. I suppose one of the things they didn't do in Australia, political leaders, which some did in the States, was attempt to capitalise on the COVID pandemic. I mean, by and large, you had political leaders uh, in Australia uh, supporting lockdowns, supporting the suspension of, of certain freedoms in order to prevent the spreading of COVID and also supporting the imposition of mandates to wear masks and mandates for vaccination. Premiers, uh, the Prime Minister by, by and large. On the other hand, though, how much was QAnon itself in Australia able to capitalise on the measures put into place because of COVID? Oh, it, it absolutely yeah. did. I think every Australian should just get down on their knees every day and thank that wonderful parliament in the 1920s that legislated universal enfranchisement, or as it's otherwise known as compulsory voting, because compulsory voting keeps polarisation out of our politics. And we make much more sensible decisions in Australia than in the United States, because you have to speak to that centre all the time. And that means that kind of QAnon takeover, and they're only a minority of the population. But as I say to people when I talk about this stuff, it's not about the weight of numbers, it's about the weight of damage they are prepared to do. And in the United States, that weight of damage is having this horrendous political outcome with politicians competing against one another to be more and more extreme. And it's the centre-right who really need to take the stand against the staff because it comes from the far right and it moves on their moment, their movement and, like, decentralises what's supposed to be one of the contested positions in the mm. middle. And that's really frightening. In Australia, of course, that, that stuff has been pushed to those communities and we had some really hairy moments here in terms of looking at a community of people who were being encouraged online to greater acts of domestic chaos and disturbance. And I wrote about this for the New York Times after the book came out about what was happening with the anti-lockdown protests in Melbourne because I, had, I was enmeshed in these communities and watching them organise and realised that the kind of those sort of really chaotic... So, so Australians were just on board with public health measures. Like, it didn't matter if you were left, right or indifferent. You had this amazing conviction in your right not to die of a preventable illness. And that united us. I think it was, you know, one of Australia's greatest moments was the enthusiasm that people showed for that kind of, you know, public health mm. observance. Yeah. But, of course in the disinformation communities that were mobilised, there was a very different conversation going on. And the conversation wasn't 
for Australians, because 90% of us were like, yep, masks, bring it on. It was for Americans. There was this really revealing episode in Melbourne where the anti-lockdown protesters gathered near the IKEA in Richmond. Mm. And it's like, what a random place. <laughs> like, down with lockdowns and down with self-assembled furniture. Down with, <laughs> down with socially democratic principles of design. Like, it was extreme. I was like, do they hate Swedes? Like, what is... Well, I worked it with my partner. We worked it out because we were watching this stuff happen online. And it had to do with the fact that where they had gathered was at the bottom of a ravine, quite a narrow ravine, where um, enough of a mass of people could, looked much bigger than they were because mm. they were tightly packed in. And they were charging um, a very poorly organised police line because, you know, police in Melbourne aren't used to that level of violence. That's generally not a thing that happens. But the giveaway was that they had cameras, like multi-angle shots, positioned at the top of that ravine. And all of that footage, it wasn't for Australians, it was being sent back to the United States, to the disinformation communities that were literally telling their participants that Australia had become a totalitarian dictatorship. And this week, Michael Gunner, the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory, has resigned. He, of course, was put in the position where, to preserve remote communities, they had very strict lockdowns in the Northern Territory and found himself and his family targeted by this propaganda mm. and had death threats against his two-year-old child um, from these Americans who were constantly bombarding him with these kind of threats. This is, though, where you get this really interesting, in inverted commas, intersection between... We've been talking so far predominantly about how uh, QAnon comes out of and is manipulated by the right-wing political movement, especially in the United States. Tell us, though, how the wellness community came to be a part of this paranoid world, because we were talking about people here who are into yoga, into, you know, eating healthy food, meditating, uh, and, and so on, but many people from that community and I think we call this term fusion paranoia. They've embraced some of the views of QAnon, haven't they? Oh, en masse. And that was how QAnon got into Australia. So in America, there are these established sort of hard right communities and evangelical, evangelical communities who are quite susceptible to the language and apocalyptic symbols of QAnon. In Australia and in Germany, it came in through the, the wellness community and, and what we you know, once used to call like new age groups. And the term fusion paranoia is a, a phenomenon where supposedly unlike groups realise they have the same paranoias in common and merge. And this is what happens. So in the United States, you have these right-wing communities who are mobilised against big pharma and, you know, drug companies are up to secret trials and Bill Gates is putting 5G chips in your soda water and the rest of it. And in Australia, of course, you have wellness communities who are like, we're into clean eating and we'll meditate away pollution and celery for life and the rest of it. Sorry, that's me being very dismissive. I do underline I've spent a year with these people. So that paranoia of, you know, the drug companies are bad and the government's in on it. There's a statement of faith in the QAnon community, for example, that commercial bread products are made out of aborted fetuses. Just so you know, they genuinely believe that fetus products are used in bread and there's all, this thing, all these things they will and will not eat as a result. They believe this. They do memes. They're not good memes. Don't look. Don't look at them. And you have these people share this sort of... In a way, 
it uh, affirms the belief to them. Because if you have someone who's not like you saying the same things you are, that seems to be, it becomes more of a fact. Yeah. Like if you live in a certain place and a part of a certain culture and someone who dresses differently and has different behaviour and rituals agrees that Bill Gates is putting 5G chips in your vaccines, well, I mean, that becomes a form of proof. And this is what happens, that these groups start sharing belief systems. So you will meet like North Coast hippies in New South Wales, mm. absolutely convinced that Donald Trump is the God Emperor and is the, the warrior who is boldly going out to save us from Hillary Clinton and the lizard Yes. Panel. So th this brings us to the other fascinating part of your book, which is who it is that is attracted to QAnon. And they're different to the stereotype that I had in my mind of the types of people that are believers in QAnon and, and these conspiracy cults. So talk a bit about that, the, perhaps the psychological profile of people like this and also their background. Yeah, so this, this was the big revelation and numerous sociologists have now picked up on this. The data is in. It starts with the stereotype around Donald Trump voters in the United States in 2016 where Trump was very self-consciously portraying himself as a hero of the working class, which is kind of extraordinary from someone who was born into a billionaire family. Sean Hannity on Fox News called him the blue-collar billionaire, which you can imagine caused my brain to explode. And certainly a lot of the, the symbols around Trump were of this sort of everyman speaker of the, of the people kind of persona. And it meant that progressive organisations and progressive media covered Trump as, you know, this hero of the working class communities that had been displaced by globalisation, you know, your steel workers in Ohio and, and car manufacturers in Michigan. That's not who voted for Trump. What we know about who voted for Trump is that their single largest identifier was that you were a member of a homeowners association and that Trump voters were not working class. Trump voters were middle-class people. They were white-collar professionals. They were people who owned their own homes. They were overwhelmingly white, but not exclusively white. But they had a real sense of status anxiety in a changing America. One of the really interesting pieces of data that came out of the January 6 protesters was that overwhelmingly, the January 6 protesters, they might have been dressed like truckers, but they weren't. They were doctors and lawyers and teachers and small business owners and people who had the money in America to fly down to Washington for a weekend, stay at the Hilton and try to overthrow the government. That's who they were. The American working class does not have the disposable income to participate in actions like that. And what sociologists have worked out is that this kind of conspiracy belief in these specific cult communities based around the American right or the Australian wellness community are intensely middle-class people. And they're people who have had some kind of, generally people who've had some kind of status disruption to their lives. They're people who have faced bankruptcy or a failing business. They're people who may have been through a brutal divorce or a custody battle or some kind of adverse legal finding that has displaced them from their class hierarchy. And what the conspiracy cults do is come up with essentially a pretext for their troubles, that it's not you and how you've run your life that has led you into this sense of distress. It's actually the government, Bill Gates, George Soros, Hillary Clinton, the lizard people, that these are the forces that are causing this problem for you. I'm at the Queenscliff Literary Festival speaking to Van Badham, 
author of QAnon and On. One of the psychologists who I spoke to when I was researching the book described the tendency towards conspiratorial thinking. It comes from what psychologists call the paranoid schizoid position or something called splitting. When people are in distress, when people are overwhelmed with information that they can't process, they polarise information. To make it more simple in, in the way that they can align themselves, nuance becomes very difficult to people who are in distress. Good guys, bad guys, simple binary way of doing the yeah. work. Good guys, bad guys, with Trump or against us. Yeah. You know, and that kind of lizard people or patriots, like that, it becomes very simple. And a very easy way of getting an ego gain is to join the side of the good guys. I'm a good person and I'm a hero and I'm a patriot because I'm on to QAnon and I'm on to Pizzagate mm. and I'm fighting the lockdown protests. And overwhelmingly, one of the reasons why these movements are continuing is because there's money behind them because they come from middle-class people. Yes, and you make the point that never before in human history has it been easier for us to verify certain facts on the internet. Information is out there. It is, if you really want to find it, easy to differentiate bogus information from genuine information. However, and this has also been a fact with the spread of, kind of fake news generally, you cannot change the minds of people like the people that you spent a year with in these online communities by presenting them with facts. You cannot win an argument against them using facts, can you? No, and this is, uh, this is very obvious to anyone on the internet. And, and I see it so often because now I've written the book and people come to me going, this is happening in my family and this is happening with my friend. I have a conversation like that at least once a day. And it is so frustrating to watch people going, I just don't understand. So for example, at the anti-lockdown protests in Canberra, there were, one of my personas observed this extraordinary discussion where people were absolutely convinced, absolutely convinced that the police were spying on them with robot dogs. That the police had dogs that looked, that had robots that looked like dogs that were circling the protests and, you know, listening to their, their thoughts and the rest of it. And this was a statement of facts. Somebody who has decided to believe that Australian federal police are deploying robot dogs is not someone you can reason out of that position. Mm. They do not believe those things because they are reasonable. They believe those things because they are emotional. And investing that emotional connection into those mythologies is keeping them in a psychological place where they feel important and special and privileged and empowered mm. as like a bulwark against whatever is going on in their lives that is actually distressing them. For people who are, are not in conspiracy land, trying to argue the facts is a recipe for, for your own need for a counsellor because it can't get you anywhere. This is Best of the Festivals on Radio National Summer and we're listening to Van Badham speaking about her book QAnon and On. At this session from the Queenscliff Literary Festival recorded in May, she's in conversation with RN's Paul Barclay. I felt a real sense of sadness, actually, about some of the people that had been sucked into this rabbit hole and indeed a sadness about the families and friends that they'd been torn apart from. And I read your book not long after I listened to a podcast that you might have heard called American Radical about Roseanne Boyland, who died in the Capitol uh, building attacks. She had been sucked into this rabbit hole. She ended up dead as a result of it. This podcast talks to her family and, and what happened to them. But you similarly write 
of, of, of similar stories. And you were talking earlier about your friend, Michelle, and how she came into contact with the QAnon rabbit hole. Perhaps you can just tell us a bit about Michelle's story. So Michelle it, it kind of humanises this, and I think, and I think it's also one of the things your book does, actually, is, you know, we've been talking about the kind of bigger picture in a sense, but when we drill down to the impact on individual human beings, it is quite shocking. It, it is really full on. So Michelle is a really, really old friend of mine from school. She married her high school boyfriend. Uh, they had a couple of kids very young. She was going through a midlife crisis, effectively. I think she would use that term some years ago. And, you know, their kids were leaving school and it was all a bit up in the air. And she was suffering from depression. And when she was very vulnerable, she was sucked into a hypnotherapy cult. So her hairdresser, she, she confessed to her hairdresser that she was struggling and unhappy. And her hairdresser said, oh, I've been going to these sessions with these amazing people. You do a weekend, it only, it only costs $1,000. And, you know, they'll so, solve your problems. And she was really vulnerable and they got her. Mm. And they convinced her that her husband was a suppressive person, that he was about influence and, you know, distracting her from her dreams. They convinced her to start her own hypnotherapy practice. She moved out of the family home, separated from her husband, was all of a sudden in a relationship with this guy from the hypnotherapy cult and was running this business. And her whole life was just in service to this cult. And it all came crashing down when she found out. She found some emails from her new partner to one of his 23 other girlfriends and reached out to these other women who'd all been lied to and had all been sucked into this thing. And the happy part of the story was that Michelle and her husband reunited. They dealt with their problems. Everybody's all right. But Michelle and her husband joined a community yoga class. Um, this is years after her experience in the hypnotherapy cult. And we're enjoying it enormously. You know, they live in Queensland. It's like a fun Queensland thing to do. And at the beginning of the pandemic, the yoga guru's partner had left him and he went full QAnon. And he turned this yoga group into a full-on Hillary Clinton is a lizard person forum. Mm. And it became this whole with us or against us. Um, if you, you have betrayed yoga unless you believe all of these conspiracy theories that I'm learning from the internet. And he was part of that whole sort of wellness fusion paranoia thing. And Michelle had a breakdown and saw the article that I had written and called me to tell me about what had happened to her because she had stood up to him going, this is ridiculous. Like, this is just not true. What are you doing? We're a yoga class. And he organised for other people in the class to shun her so it was things like she would walk into the local cafe and people would turn the, physically turn their backs on her and practice that kind of social ostracism. And it was quite a disturbing story because it was just, it was so ordinary and suburban and yet so completely out of line at the same time. And she said, look, Van, this is going on everywhere. Like this is going on in yoga communities and I'm hearing about it from various people. So I phoned friends of mine who are like traditional Chinese medicine practitioners and other friends who are sort of around that community. And they were like, yep, it is everywhere. And the internet propaganda is intense. And it is driving relationships apart. It is driving families apart. You know, this kind of shunning and it's its legitimate cult behaviour. And it had hurt Michelle so much because it just reawakened yeah. all of the guilt and shame that she felt about having been sucked into a cult years earlier. 
And it is, like, really horrendous. Like, mm. there's an extraordinary community of people on Reddit now. Hilariously, one of the places that started the whole QAnon thing is where people go to find sort of comfort, uh, called QAnon Casualties. And they're families and ex-partners of people who meet to sort of share stories about how the cult has affected their relationships and to find some kind of peer support. Mm. I did um, the Adelaide Writers' Week a few months ago and I had a guy come up to me when I was signing books afterwards who talked to me about how his relationship was ending because his partner had become a QAnon person. Yeah. And, I mean, it's heartbreaking. Did you, did you find... I mean, you made thousands of online friends as part of the research that you did when you went underground. Did, I mean, did you find... Were you overwhelmed by how kind of depressing and bleak oh, this yeah. world is? Oh, my partner who's here can, can vouch there were nightmares because I was terrified and traumatised most of the time and I cried a lot. Like, I cried a lot because once people are in the grip of a false reality, they cannot make good decisions because mm. they're not making decisions on the basis of truthful behaviour. I encountered absolutely horrendous loneliness. Uh, one of my personas uh, was a young man and was constantly besieged by extremely damaged single women who were looking for partners and sort of... I received some very colourful emails from these women. And you can imagine, I wasn't doing anything to encourage this. It was just this desperate need from these people for connection, which they... And this is the tragedy of cults, is people go to... are attracted to cults to meet an emotional need. But if the cult met your emotional need, you'd have no use for it anymore. Mm. So cults always sort of delay... They're like cigarettes. They constantly delay the gratification. And you find these people who just enthrall to these stories of, like, anger and fear and looking to make human connections within that. Yeah. One of the things I found out since the book came out, because I went to Canberra, Andrew Lee, who's the member for FENA, which is one of the ACT federal seats, he has been quite outspoken against these anti-lockdown people, as you can imagine, because they absolutely trashed Canberra when they were there. And the result is he now has intervention orders against several of them for threatening his life and the life of his staff. It got very hairy. And I did an event with him and we had to have a security detail, which was pretty extraordinary. But it was, I mean, for him, he's got like a PhD from Harvard. You can imagine he finds conspiracy thinking quite strange. Like, why would you think these things? <laughs> anyway, there were 15,000 of them in Canberra. So I spent some time there to do this event with him and observing the anti-lockdown protests. And I found out that uh, it was an absolute hive of Tinder activity, that this community, these camps of people were meeting one another and it was a, it was a cultural and social space. And I learned from taxi drivers in Canberra that they weren't using hotel rooms, they were using taxis, I think, because they were available and portable. But the less we hear about that, probably the better. That story. I think rather um, than getting into the details, looking at it superstructurally, these are people looking to create a cultural community yeah. and looking for social connections within that. So we can't turn these people around using facts and the dissemination of sensible information. And we've established that they are a very real threat. You know, when we've seen deaths occurring in the states, they as set a result fire of this. to Old Parliament House in Australia. They actually set fire to the Museum of Australian Democracy, which is a bit of a dead giveaway that this is not safe. So, so, so they're, a, they're a threat. They can't be countered by uh, better information. What do we do to, to stop and to limit 
these online conspiracy communities. This is advice that is very qualified from all of the people who I interviewed and spoke to all over the world, synthesised into my own judgement, which is we take them bowling. We take them bowling. We go bowling. Because you can't... This is 10-pin bowling. 10-pin bowling, patonk, lawn bowls. Okay. Bowling <laughs> is really where it's at. And let me tell you why. Because people become more and more radicalised, and it is a radicalisation process, the more that they get separated from peer relationships that pull them back to the real. And given that they do not respond to reason, given the fact that if you argue with them, you may even entrench their beliefs further, the way that you get them out is through a process of re-socialisation and keeping contact alive. And bowling is great because you don't really talk about anything apart from bowling when you're bowling. It's positive, it's fun, it doesn't require great skill or proficiency to have a good game or a bad game or the rest of it. And it's a way of creating positive social memories and re-establishing social bonds. And it's those kind of activities that get people off the internet and back into a community and into conversations that are positive and remind them of what of how powerful their relationships with their loved ones really are and to reassert that there are people who genuinely want to connect with them. And because where this goes so terribly wrong is that someone goes down the rabbit hole. I hear this all the time as well. I can't do it anymore. I can't listen about the lizard people, Bill Gates, George Soros, the international conspiracy of pedophiles. I cannot do it anymore and cut them off. And that means that their, their social world becomes narrower and narrower into these communities, who, by the way, also exploit them financially mercilessly. There's a whole industry of what they call conspiracy entrepreneurs who will sell them QAnon T-shirts or conferences or workshops mm. or the rest of it, and it is a massive grift to just milk them of all the money that they have. I mean, it's interesting, too, your, your book places this movement in a historical context of conspiracist thinking that's gone back centuries. It did make me wonder, though, why in particular pedophile tropes are so central to QAnon and also to various conspiracy cults going back a long time. To the Romans. So pedophiles drinking the blood of children while participating in satanic orgies under the ground is a two and a half thousand year old conspiracy theory. Mm. And it has been repurposed to dehumanise various groups throughout history. Specifically, no bones about it, Jewish people and mm. anti-Semitism is absolutely woven into the mythology yeah. of QAnon. And there, it, it's interesting because there are QAnon people in Israel, there is a QAnon community there, mm. and you just think, how has that happened? And of course, it's happened because QAnon has just repurposed myths that are familiar and people don't see, once they're in there, they don't see what they don't wish to see. In the same way that they're cutting out facts, they are cutting out parts of the mythology that don't appeal to them. It's the desire to believe that mobilises people within these communities. Mm. And once you're overridden by a desire to believe, like facts and details just get edited out. It's interesting because QAnon changes in different national contexts. Like I said, in Australia, there's that fusion paranoia with the wellness community. In Japan, the QAnon community has this particular obsession with the, there's a conspiracy theory that the imperial royal family of Japan is behind all the natural disasters that have befallen Japan. And a big part of the QAnon mythos there is that the imperial royal family created the triple disaster of the tsunami 
the, the earthquake, tsunami and nuclear disaster, that they were somehow nefariously behind it. So it changes in various mm. contexts. But the internet is, is crucial. You know, we know, for example, with, uh, with Trump that he was booted off Twitter because of the dubious nature of some of his tweets. What role does Facebook, Twitter, the big social media companies, what role do they play in the dissemination and, and therefore the kind of boosting, if you like, of conspiracy theories oh, and they, disinformation? Oh, they facilitate it. They absolutely facilitate it. And they could have turned this off 10 years ago. All of the platforms have the capacity to just shut it down. And Facebook say that they have, you know, cracked down on QAnon, but I'm in those groups on Facebook. There is, the crackdown is totally meaningless. And one of the reasons why it has now jumped, like a virus, from the internet to mainstream news. Fox News is saturated with QAnon, Newsmax and One American News in the United States, two other big right-wing cable networks. So it's all QAnon all the time. Mm. Now, Tucker Carlson, Dog Whistles, a QAnon talking point every day. He's the most watched cable news host in America. And the reason why, and I can tell you this as a person who works in the media, is people are more susceptible to advertising when they're angry and they're frightened. Hence the old television standard, if it bleeds, it leads. Mm. Like we all, in the media, we all know that. Those kind of communities are extremely lucrative for Facebook mm. because you can, if you're feeling angry and upset, buy these vitamins or this car or this jacket and you'll feel better. So why would you demobilise them? They're quite hostile to conventional mainstream media to the members of these online conspiracy communities, aren't they? Yeah, despite the fact that they will watch Fox and mm. OAN. Yeah, they will tell you that the, the mainstream media, because it's a source of contradicting information, cannot be trusted. I mean, it's like any cult. Any cult relies on creating what's called a sealed information environment, mm. where the only information that you trust or are comfortable in circulating or receiving comes from your community. So there are no outside checks on what you're consuming. Mm. In some ways, studying the community has been really good. I actually found it really healthy for me because I have broadened my own reading as a result of the work that I've done to make sure I'm not in a sealed information, that I'm not just consuming the kind of positions that are ideologically compatible to my own yeah. and have become much more aware of how easy it is in an infinite media environment offered by the internet for us to get into echo chambers and just reinforce the positions that we hold. And it, it's it's been a really good... Like, personally, I found it really useful to be so terrified of the extremist experience um, in order to stay, like, in a, in a discourse that is more inclusive. The Confronting World of Conspiracy Theories and Cults. That was writer, playwright and podcaster Van Badham speaking with Paul Barclay about her book QAnon Anon at this year's Queenscliff Literary Festival. I'm Cassie McCullough, and if you want to hear more about books and writing, then make sure you join me and Kate Evans for The Bookshelf and Claire Nichols for The Book Show each week on Radio National or via the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.